Thank you, uh, Lord Patton. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Thank you all for coming here. <coughs> Both the Vice-Chancellor and the Chancellor have referred <coughs> to Oxford's long relationship with India. Now, relationship is an interesting and intriguing word. It's a word pregnant with meaning, if I may put it that way. And last night I was having dinner at All Souls <coughs> with the warden, who apart from being a brilliant man, a distinguished economist, a public servant, is also a very thoughtful and generous host. So he placed me uh, uh, somewhere where opposite uh, my line of sight were three gentlemen in robes. And I asked him, who's that? He said, Lord Curzon, he's to be Viceroy of India. <laughs> that, that, well, that's Lord Halifax. I said, well, I know he was Viceroy of India. And the third gentleman on the right, and uh, Sir John Vickers kind of squirmed in his seat and said, well, that's Lord Chemsworth. He was also Viceroy of India. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, being like most Oxford dons are, very quick to think on his feet, he said, turn right. Now, I don't normally turn right, because I'm a man of the left and all my enemies are on the right. <laughs> but I did turn right, and there, to my immense relief and reassurance, was someone not in robes, but in a magnificent Sherwani and a turban, Sarvapali Radhakrishnan, former president of India and also former professor at All Souls. So there is a relationship, pregnant with meaning, good, bad, indifferent. And I thought I'd start with that, my take on this relationship, uh, through the lens of individuals, uh, because I am by temperament a biographer. And if you look at the kind of individuals who are part of this relationship, who are a product of this relationship, they include men of power and authority and distinction, not just the viceroys, but also our current prime minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, they include great writers, uh, Lord Patton has mentioned too, Vikram Seth and Amitabh Ghosh. They include, dare I say, superb cricketers. In the summer of 1959, India was playing England. And in those days, uh, we weren't really, weren't really very good at playing in the English summer. English summer for us was something, not a summer, shall we say. Uh, and we lost the first three test matches. So we were 3-0 down, at which stage, India's leading cricket journalist, a man called K.N. Prabhu, who then wrote for the Times of India, who roughly had the kind of authority and eloquence that Neville Cardus once commanded in this country, wrote an editorial in his newspaper beseeching the Indian selectors. And he said, as a journalist, and journalists, as you know, are somewhat acquainted, shall we say, with the spiritual things of life, in this case, bottles of whiskey. Uh, <laughs> this journalist wrote in, uh, in the Times of India, he, said, he wrote an open letter to the Indian selectors where he said, don't be vague. Ask for big, not for Hague. Ask for big. And big was Abbas Ali Beg, then an undergraduate at University College Oxford, who was commandeered by uh, the Indian selectors. That was the power that journalists had in those days, and scored 100 on test debut. Another great uh, product of the Oxford India relationship was Mansoor Ali Khan, Pataudi, arguably the finest fielder who ever played for India. Incidentally, now enjoying a holiday in London, so if either side in the afternoon wants him to come, I'm sure he'll roll up. You won't be able to get him out still, but that's, that's a risk you'll have to take. So there's a long list of 
extraordinary, remarkable individuals who are part of this relationship. And I'm going to make my case that India is the most interesting country in the world by reference to a person I believe to be Oxford's most brilliant gift to India. He was a man called J.B.S. Haldane, who studied at New College, and who was once described by his younger contemporary, the philosopher Alfred Ayer, as the last man alive to know everything. <laughs> uh, he was uh, professionally, although he studied classics at New, New College, he became one of the 20th century's most influential biologists. And uh, after holding chairs at Oxford, Cambridge, and University College London, in the summer of 1956, at the age of 60, he decided to migrate to India and become an Indian citizen. Uh, it's an extraordinary decision, completely contrary to what people did then and what people do now. The history of the 20th century is replete with examples of gifted, ambitious young scientists going from east to west. And no doubt some of them are now professors at the University of Oxford. Uh, but here was a man, at the height of his career, abandoning a privileged and established perch in a great university to go to India. And Haldane was asked, why have you done this? Why have you chosen Indian citizenship? And he gave different answers, because he was, he was an eccentric Scotsman, and depending on the questioner, uh, he would give his whole answer. He told someone, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru is a more attractive prime minister than Anthony Eden, which is true. <laughs> He told somebody else uh, that he was horrified by the Suez misadventure and uh, compared to Haldane, I'm a flaming right-winger. So that's how left-wing and anti-imperialist he was. And then he told a third journalist when asked, why are you moving to India? He said, 60 years in socks was enough. <laughs> so <laughs> he moves to India in 1956 and becomes an Indian citizen in the small matter of three months. Now, any of the, those of you who know the Indian bureaucracy, <laughs> it, was, it, it was something because Nehru, Nehru recognized, Nehru, despite his uh, uh, recent depiction as a kind of woolly, idealistic man, was actually highly pragmatic. And he recognized the propaganda importance of having one of the greatest scientists in the world becoming an Indian citizen. And he fast-tracked his application. So he became an Indian citizen. He was a professor at the Indian Statistical Institute. <coughs> uh, three years after Haldane moves to India, an American science writer writes a profile of this great biologist and uh, Renaissance man, in which was headlined, Citizen of the World. And Haldane took offense. So he wrote a letter to the journalist saying, no doubt I am in some sense a citizen of the world. But I believe with Thomas Jefferson, that one of the chief duties of a citizen is to be a nuisance to the government of his state. As there is no world state, I cannot do this. On the other hand, I can be, and am, a nuisance to the government of India, which has the merit of permitting a good deal of criticism, although it reacts to it rather slowly. <laughs> That's an experience I painfully you know, have every three or, four, three or four months when I write a column that is angry and uh, combative and critical of the Indian government. It takes about eight years for some reactions to happen. But it does permit a good deal of criticism, although it reacts to it rather slowly. 
And then Haldane goes on. And this, this is the, <coughs> these are the critical sentences. He goes on. I also happen to be proud of being a citizen of India, which is a lot more diverse than Europe, let alone the USA, USSR or China, and thus a better model for a possible world organization. It may, of course, break up, but it is a wonderful experiment. So I want to be labeled a citizen of India. That was all day in 1960. The next year, 1961, he wrote a newspaper article where he described his new country, the Republic of India, as the closest approximation to the free world. Now, remember, this is the time of the Cold War. This is just before the Cuba, Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was the United States of America which was supposed to be the closest approximation to the free world. And according to uh, such reactionaries as John Foster Dulles and so on, America, India was a Soviet satellite. And here is Holden saying, India is the closest approximation to the free world. A friend of his uh, called Richard Newman, who was professor of biology at the University of California at Berkeley, read this article and wrote an angry letter to his fellow biologist. He said, you say that India is the closest approximation to the free world, but based on my visits to your country, India has its fair share of scoundrels and a tremendous amount of poor, unthinking, and disgustingly subservient individuals who are not attractive. <laughs> and to this creed, which undoubtedly has, has and had an element of truth, Holden replied, perhaps one is freer to be a scoundrel in India than elsewhere. <laughs> and then he continues, the disgusting subservience of the others has its limits. The people of Calcutta riot, upset trams, and refuse to obey police regulations in a manner which would have delighted Jefferson. I don't think their activities are very efficient, but that is not the question at issue. Now, what Holden did in uh, two unpublished letters, which fortunately for me did not find their way into the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, but were lying in an archive in Edinburgh where I discovered them, what he did in those two uh, unpublished letters was to capture the elements of my thesis, that India is the most interesting country in the world. Why is India the most interesting country in the world? India is both an unnatural nation and an unlikely democracy. An unnatural nation and an unlikely democracy. And let's unpack those two terms. An unnatural nation. Never before in human history was a land so large, so diverse, so disunited, constructed as a single territorial nation state. And the most magnificent illustration of why India is the most interesting country in the world, and an uh, illustration that is particularly apposite uh, to display and, in fact, to brag about in a country as historically monolingual as this one, uh, is the Indian rupee note, with 17 languages, indeed 17 different scripts, each script encoding a literary tradition that is 800,000, 1,200 years old. So it's an unnatural nation. If you look at the history of nations in Europe, uh, across the world, nations were constructed on the principle that their citizens will share a common language, hence in this country minority tongues were extinguished, uh, they will subscribe to a certain faith, 
Hence, the Church of England is still the official state religion, and they will, hence they will have a common enemy, which in the case of Britain, as uh, illustrated magnificently in Linda Colley's book of that name, is France. <laughs> and by that, by that template, it's a template which is exemplified by the national histories of Poland, of Ukraine, of Russia, uh, and so on. By that template, <coughs> Pakistan is a superb illustration of a European nation. <laughs> United on the principle of Islam, Urdu, which is why the East Pakistanis had to break away, and enmity towards India. And the extraordinary thing about India which, uh, is that it was constructed on the basis of the promotion of linguistic and religious pluralism. And we don't hate Pakistan, and actually we don't hate England either. We have a very uh, endearing and mutually beneficial relationship uh, <coughs> Uh, with, with our former uh, colonizing power, a relationship which gave us the game of cricket and gave them the glories of, among other things, Indian cuisine. <laughs> and just think of English literature without Vikram Seth and Amitabh Ghosh, and you have a sense of how mutually beneficial that relationship is. And it's because the construction of the idea of India by such people as Tagore and Gandhi and Nehru and many others uh, recognized that India was an unnatural nation where unity had to be forged on the basis of the promotion of pluralism within and outside the country. But it's also an unlikely democracy. And by that I mean, <clears throat> never before in human history was a largely illiterate population given the vote. Uh, if you look at the history of the vote in the West, first only men of property were allowed to choose their leaders. Then men of education were added onto the roster. After a long struggle, working class men were granted the vote. And after an even longer struggle, women were allowed to participate in the political process. I'm now working on a book on Gandhi's early years. And I was struck by uh, how influenced Gandhi was by the suffragette movement. This is a sort of underappreciated aspect of Gandhi's life that he visited London in 1906 and 1909 when he was a diasporic leader in, uh, in South Africa. And those were the years in which on the streets of London, women were demonstrating, going to jail, uh, undertaking hunger fast in jail. And that was something that seeped deep into his consciousness uh, and into the consciousness of other people involved with the Indian national movement. So that when India became free, every citizen, regardless Every adult citizen, regardless of gender or class or education, was granted the right to vote. And everyone thought this would fail. Uh, the first elections were called the biggest gamble in history. And the, after the second election, we were told that India would balkanize. The, after the third election, which also coincided with a period of scarcity and the failure of the monsoon, we were told that uh, <coughs> India would be stalked by famine. And the Stanford biologist uh, Paul Ehrlich, visiting India in 1965, went home and wrote a book called The Population Bomb, uh, which began, and I'm quoting from memory, uh, it began as some, somewhat as follows. Ehrlich writes, intellectually, I have understood the population problem for a very long time. Emotionally, I came to understand it one hot, stinking night in Delhi. I was driving to the streets all around me were people, people eating, people drinking, people sleeping, people defecating, people, 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 people. And uh, he also says, by the way, in that, uh, uh, in that uh, 
memorable passage about how he learnt about the population problem. He says, I was driving through the streets of Delhi in an ancient taxi whose only functional gear was third. Uh, well, tell that to Jaguar and uh, a Land Rover now, and who owns them. So, because India uh, is an unnatural nation, an unlikely democracy, it uh, has been, in many ways, the most reckless, the most ambitious, the most daring political experiment in human history. The size, the diversity, the scale, the fact that there are multiple revolutions occurring. There's a democratic revolution, a national revolution, an economic revolution, a social revolution, all on this extraordinarily large and diverse and complicated landscape. Uh, it's, uh, it's the most interesting country in the world if you are a writer, a filmmaker, or a historian. It can still sometimes be the most exasperating country in the world if you are none of the above. Uh, so it's, it's a privilege as a scholar and as a writer to study in India. It's not always a privilege to live in India because of uh, the malfunctioning of public institutions, the levels of pollution, the traffic gridlocks, the corruption, and so on and so forth. Now, I'll just end with one caution and one story. The caution is to do with uh, uh, the idea floated by some self-interested editors and uh, uh, business people in India that we are about to become an imminent superpower, uh, that India is a rising power, a global power, uh, you know, just as the 20th century belonged to the United States, the 21st century belonged to China and India. That is rubbish. Or I could even say, following Jeff Boycott, that is rubbish. <laughs> uh, there's no doubt uh, that we are an extraordinarily interesting and important political experiment. And in many ways, I'm glad Lord Patton mentioned our pluralism, in many ways it's our pluralism that is a message to the world. You know, we can tell the Americans not to be so paranoid about, uh, uh, about Spanish. We have 17 languages, they can't have two. Uh, we can tell the French not to be crazy about this headscarf burqa business. When the uh, French headscarf controversy first uh, erupted five or six years ago, I was giving a lecture in the University of Calicut in Kerala, which is a Muslim-majority district, and in an audience this size, half of it was young ladies in headscarves, not burqas. You can oppose burqas, but not headscarves. Headscarves, in certain conditions, are liberating, allow the woman or the young girl to go to school and college. So there are lessons India can teach the world on how to live together despite diversity and disparity. But we are not a superpower. We are not even an aspiring superpower. Uh, there are too many fault lines within, between poor and rich, between different parts of India. There's a rising Maoist insurgency. There's the ever-present danger of religious and sectarian violence. There are horrible levels of corruption at all levels of government. Uh, so we are not a superpower. We are not a rising power. We are not an emerging power. We are merely the most interesting country in the world. <laughs> And I'm uh, going to end with a story about this. In my travels through India, <clears throat> uh, I'm endlessly struck uh, by how interesting and unusual India is. And it's part of our democracy and our pluralism. And I'll, maybe I'll give you two stories, because one is political and one is cultural. I was uh, traveling some years ago in the northeast of India. I was in the state of Arunachal Pradesh. 
Uh, I partly went there because a great Oxford scholar, Verrier Elvin, who then became an Indian citizen and a pioneering anthropologist of tribal people, was one of my early heroes, and I wrote a book on him once. So I went to Arunachal Pradesh, where Elvin also lived. And in the capital of Arunachal Pradesh, Itanagar, I was taken by my host from the Rajiv Gandhi University to the Jawaharlal Nehru State Park to the Indira Gandhi State Museum. <laughs> and I was really upset and angry because, you know, this kind of sycophantic culture, which is so typical of India. And on the drive back to Guwahati, uh, you drive uh, down the <coughs> Brahmaputra Valley, and you come to the uh, town of Guwahati in Assam. I was thinking of all this, and my anger was intensified when 10 miles outside Guwahati, I saw a Rajiv Gandhi indoor stadium. <laughs> and I was ready to burst. Till the next sign I saw on the roadside advertised an Amritsari Punjabi Dhaba. And my second illustration of uh, this extraordinary diversity that is India comes from a visit I made to Kerala in the south. And I was asked to inaugurate a book fair. Kerala, as you know, is, uh, has probably high, a higher literacy rate than many European countries. It has a very vigorous argumentative culture in many languages. And uh, I reached early, which is just about the only un-Indian and un-Gandhian trait that I have. I come on time. <laughs> I actually come 10 minutes earlier as I did today. So I was taken by my host to look around the stalls. And this being Kerala, there was a great diversity of uh, stalls selling books on literature, poetry, film, science, and so on. And even a stall selling the collected works in Malayalam, the last such stall. Uh, there are no such stalls in China. So I should say the last such stall in the world selling the collected works in translation of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. And here was this stall selling left-wing literature uh, owned by a local publishing house. And on the right was a stall selling the works. I regret to say not a Oxford University Press, but I actually think Cambridge University Press. <coughs> anyway, some Western publisher. And in the middle, flanked by a modern Western scientific publisher on the one side and a local ideological political publisher on the other, was a stall selling Rajasthani pickle, Bikaneri Achar. <laughs> and ladled in these buckets, open buckets, and I'll have to say some words in Hindi, many people here understand Hindi, ladled in these buckets were this pickle, and he would you know, serve it to you and put it in a, uh, you know, in, in a plastic container. There was mango pickle and um, uh, you know, <coughs> a radish pickle and so on and so forth, and I asked him in Hindi, I said, Aap what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, he said, Dekhye. and I'll translate this for those, the benefit of those who don't know Hindi. He said, Dekhye. Suna ki mein kuch mela lag tha, to ka dukan <laughs> I had heard that deep down in Kerala, I mean, Rajasthan in Kerala is about 2,000 miles apart. And no one in Kerala, believe, it, believe me, no one in Kerala speaks either Hindi or English. <laughs> he said, I heard that there was some kind of fair going on in Kerala. So I thought, let me hire a stall and sell my pickle. Now, these are the kinds of juxtapositions <laughs> that uh, the ordinary citizen uh, experiences, and because he's got other things to do, uh, he doesn't notice them. Uh, but for a historian, they are my bread and butter and mango pickle as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>